Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome back, you guys. We are continuing our journey through Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien's book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. They begin the book by identifying three of the most common assumptions that shape how we read the Bible. Mores, race or ethnicity, and language. We covered mores last week. Ethnicity is the focus of this episode. Now, chances are you've never paid a whole lot of attention to references to Cushites in the Bible. Now, I'm a bona fide Bible nerd, and even I must admit that I tend to gloss over those references. Well, one place we see a repeated reference to a Cushite origin is in Numbers 12, in reference to Moses' wife. Verse 1 says, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, clearly, the ethnicity of Moses' wife bothered Miriam and Aaron. So the next logical question for those of us reading this passage is, why? What was the big deal with her being a Cushite? Well, examining a map of the ancient Near East or perusing the notes of a study Bible may reveal that Cush is in the southern Nile River Valley, which means that Cushites were dark-skinned Africans. I'm quoting Richards and O'Brien here. What goes without being said for many Western readers is that Africans were a slave race. Even though we no longer or should no longer consider people of African descent inferior, we may nevertheless assume that the ancient Hebrews would have thought the Cushites were inferiors. Western scholars have made this mistake for generations. Older commentaries frequently assume that dark skin denoted inferiority for the biblical authors. This assumption has been well documented by scholar J. Daniel Hayes, who has shown that the assumption that Africans are a slave race has influenced every reference to Cush and the Cushites in the Old Testament, end quote. For example, in his commentary on the books of Samuel, 19th century scholar H.P. Smith writes this, Joab then calls a Negro, and in parentheses it says, naturally a slave, and commands him. Now, what's notable about that is the fact that the verse he's referring to, 2 Samuel 18.21, never makes even the slightest reference to the person in view being a slave. It simply says that he was a Cushite. Smith imposed his own assumptions onto the passage. Here's Richards and O'Brien again. We might not be surprised that writers in the 19th century made this sort of mistake, but even into the 21st century, commentators have followed this assumption about the supposed inferiority of the Cushites against evidence to the contrary. In other words, they take what goes without being said for white Westerners, that people of African descent are deemed inferior, and conclude that Miriam and Aaron were mad because Moses had married beneath himself by marrying a dark-skinned African woman. This would be a mistake. Remember that although Westerners may have once considered Africans a slave race, in the Nile River Valley of ancient Egypt, the Hebrews were the slave race. We should know that simply from reading the Bible. 
So what was it about the Cushites that went without being said in the ancient Near East? Well, the Cushites were not deemed a slave race in the ancient world. They were respected as highly skilled soldiers. It is more likely that Miriam and Aaron thought Moses was being presumptuous by marrying above himself. It would be like a guy from a small rural farm town in the South marrying a fancy New York society girl. That man's family would likely make remarks like, who does he think he is? He's gotten a little too big for his britches. Did you hear he eats sushi and drives one of them electric cars? I don't even know who he is anymore. In Numbers 12 two, Aaron and Miriam say, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? In other words, He's got himself a fancy Cushite wife, and now he acts like he's the only prophet in town. We're prophets too, you know. Well, the history of Western interpretation, this passage in Numbers 12, has been completely misread, simply because white men writing the Bible commentaries imported their own assumptions about race and ethnicity into their conclusions. The point of the second chapter of misreading scripture with Western eyes is that this happens way more than we think it does. Let's look at one more example that Richards and O'Brien share in the book. Most of us know from a surface reading of 1 Corinthians that unity was a major issue for the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 12 says, for it has been reported to me that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this, one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or the really spiritual people. I belong to Christ. We assume, based on our church experiences, that the division in Corinth is rooted in theological differences or preferences for certain personalities. Because our churches are so segregated, we rarely encounter a division that's connected to ethnicity. Having those kinds of divisions presupposes that the church be ethnically diverse, which is simply not the case for most congregations. But we sure do fight about doctrine, and who we think the best leaders are. So we map our concerns onto 1 Corinthians and completely miss the ethnic references that Paul has sprinkled throughout the text. Apollos was noted as an Alexandrian or Egyptian Jew. They had their own reputation. Paul notes that Peter was called by his Aramaic name, Cephas, suggesting the group that followed him spoke Aramaic and were thus Palestinian Jews. Paul's church had diaspora Jews, but also many ethnic Corinthians who were quite proud of their status as residents of a Roman colony who enjoyed using Latin. This may explain why Paul doesn't address any theological differences. There weren't any. The problem was ethnic division. Aramaic-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Romans, and Alexandrians. Now, I've been aware of the tension between Jews and Gentiles in the early church, but it was news to me that there were ethnic tensions between Jews and other Jews. Do you know what else was news to me? Up until a couple years ago, I thought ethnic tension was just one of many challenges in the early church. Only recently have I realized that it was a primary challenge in the early church, making ethnic reconciliation a hallmark of the Christian message. But if, like me, you are white, and all of the Bible study resources you use are written by people who are white, it makes total sense that the theme of ethnic unity has gone unnoticed or only given a brief nod here and there. 
White people in the West simply don't have to think about race if they don't want to. As Richards and O'Brien note, it is the unfair privilege of majority peoples to not worry about the differences ethnicity makes. It is not an important part of our everyday lives. So we're taught to think that the only issues being addressed in the New Testament are theological arguments about things like circumcision and Old Testament dietary laws. But if you take a minute to step back and see the bigger picture, a canvas colored with ethnic tension is what will come into view. Now, if you need proof that white Westerners, at least in America, have utterly missed this emphasis, just watch how uncomfortable and defensive white evangelicals get when race enters the conversation. I know this because I am one, and I get uncomfortable. If you talk too much about it in more conservative white Christian spaces, you risk being labeled as woke, which, where I come from, is one of the biggest insults there is. The authors of the New Testament cared way more about ethnic unity than most of us, me included, have ever realized. The reason a lot of us have never seen it is because of the unspoken assumptions and worldview related to race and ethnicity that we bring with us to our reading of Scripture. Describing his complicated relationship with American evangelicalism, Black New Testament scholar and Anglican priest Esau McCulley offers this sobering observation. I'm quoting from his book, Reading While Black. Eventually, I started to notice a few things. While I was at home with much of the theology and evangelicalism, there were real disconnects. First, there was the portrayal of the Black church in these circles. I was told the social gospel has corrupted Black Christianity. Rather than placing my hope there, I should look to the golden age of theology, either at the early years of this country or during the post-war boom of American Protestantism. But the historian in me couldn't help but realize that these apexes of theological faithfulness coincided with low points of black freedom. I learned that too often, alongside the four pillars of evangelicalism, which are conversionism, activism, biblicism, and cross-centeredness, there were unspoken fifth and sixth pillars. These are a general agreement on a certain reading of American history that downplayed injustice and a gentleman's agreement to remain largely silent on current issues of racism and systemic injustice, end quote. Macaulay's words resonate so deeply with me. The realities he brings to light have radically impacted the way I read the Bible. For example, about two years ago, I taught through the book of Isaiah. I had always been taught, and rightly so, that Isaiah is largely taken up with the consequences of Judah's rebellion against Yahweh. But do you know what I was utterly clueless about? I was completely ignorant of the fact that the primary transgression God holds the leaders of Judah accountable for is their injustice toward the poor and the marginalized. Do you know why I never saw that? It's not because it isn't all over the text. Good grief, it's practically spelled out in neon lights. I didn't see it because I inherited a deep suspicion from my Christian subculture toward anyone and anything that puts an emphasis on social justice. My mind was shaped to believe that justice causes are a distraction from the gospel and the mission of the church. What a surprise when I started to see that in the minds of the biblical authors, justice causes are central to the gospel and the mission of God's people. So what's the solution? 
How do I, as a white Westerner, prevent myself from being blinded to what the Bible says about ethnicity and ethnicity-related topics? Here's what Richards and O'Brien suggest. The first step is taking a good hard look in the mirror by doing a thorough inventory of our assumptions about people who are different from us. Or as Richards and O'Brien put it, prayerfully consider your prejudices. Now this is hard work since most of our prejudices go without being said. They are so deeply ingrained that they're part of the air we breathe. The people we spend the most time with, follow on social media, and stream on our favorite podcast probably share our prejudices, so there's no mechanism for exposing them. And it doesn't help that anything related to race is highly politically charged. So not only do we have to critique our prejudices, but we also have to critique our politics, which is so dang hard, but absolutely necessary if we want to get this right. Richards and O'Brien also suggest that we read scripture with an atlas handy. The biblical authors don't give us much information about how they or their audiences felt about specific people groups, but they do tell us where people are from, and sometimes that can fill in some gaps. If I tell you someone is from Portland, Oregon, you might picture a politically progressive, beanie-wearing hipster who cares a lot about the environment. If I tell you someone is from rural Arkansas, you will draw very different conclusions. All of that is conveyed in the simple geography marker. This is why Richards and O'Brien say that identifying places on a good atlas can help you detect when the author is making judgments based on geography and ethnicity, and when the writer expects us, the readers, to be doing the same thing. Reading alongside an atlas also reminds us that America is not the focus of the text, which goes sorely underemphasized in many Christian spaces today. The third suggestion for overcoming unhelpful assumptions related to ethnicity is to let the Bible be your guide. Sometimes the narrator will draw a lot of attention to the ethnicity of a character. Bible repetitions are Bible priorities, so pay attention to these and let them spur you on to deeper study. Moses' wife is one example of this. Ruth is another. We're told over and over that she is a Moabite, so this must be important. We, the reader, need to figure out why. I think it's safe to say that all of us are determined to not be racist, and many listening to this are really turned off by any hint of wokeness. I can totally relate. These impulses that we probably aren't even consciously aware of radically affect how we interpret the Bible. I remember the first time it hit me how woke Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1 sounds. Seriously, go read it. It's crazy. Until a couple years ago when I started to better understand the history of race dynamics in America by intentionally listening to more minority voices, I was oblivious to it. Even after dozens and dozens of readings, I never noticed how much Mary's song focuses on human power dynamics and praises God because he utterly subverts those power dynamics. Mary's favorite thing about God was his exaltation of the oppressed and his toppling of the powerful. What I keep mulling around in my head is the fact that if I were a part of an oppressed ethnic minority, this would be the very first thing I'd see. Well, considering that example, I have one more thing to add to Richards and O'Brien's list of how to overcome our assumptions related to ethnicity. And that's the simple act of intentionally listening to voices that are ethnically different than our own. 
Give Jasmine Holmes a follow on Instagram and learn from her. Read Esau McCauley's book, Reading While Black, and learn from him. If you ever have an opportunity to attend an ethnically diverse Bible study or small group, do it. I'm sitting here looking at bookshelves full of commentaries in my office. All of them were written by white men, which means my go-to resources for interpreting the Bible are inherently skewed toward the lived experiences of those white men. Now that doesn't make these commentaries bad, but I need to stay mindful of the specific context they represent. I also need to seek out more resources that represent a broader variety of ethnicities. Well, so much more could be said about this. I really do try to keep these at 10 minutes. We are way over that time. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop it here. As always, if you have any thoughts or questions about this, hit me up on Instagram or Substack. Thanks for tuning in. Can't wait to see you next week where we are gonna talk about the impact of language. Bye friends.